For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now back to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. It's hard for us to assess the misery and understand how bad life was. It sounds a lot like indentured service. Five and a quarter million Jews living in squalor and horrible conditions. Jewish men exploiting Jewish women by the tens of thousands. And they died. They just died from the pure torture. With little or no hope of escape. Half the children did not make it to the age of five. Someone is keeping this woman in check. We have the number one culprit, and that is men who pay for sex. Sex trafficking is, by its nature, a dark and hidden aspect of human existence. But there's a particular chapter of sex trafficking that has remained particularly dark and hidden until now. In this episode of The Bureau, acclaimed author Talia Karner shares the research and findings behind her vivid and unforgettable novel, The Third Daughter, a compelling story that brings light to a little-known piece of history, the sex trafficking of young women from Russia to South America in the late 19th century. The award-winning author of five novels, including Hotel Moscow, Jerusalem Maiden, China Doll, Puppet Child, and The Third Daughter, joins us to share her work and her personal journey. Talia Karner, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of The Bureau. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we met at a Brandeis uh, Book and Author Club event in Tucson, Arizona. And I have to tell you, I was enthralled by your story, um, as I think the audience was that day. And then more importantly, the story behind your book. And we're going we're gonna to get into that. But as we, you and I have talked, our listeners love the personal journey story. They want to know 
how you came to be an author. They want to, they want to set the context for how we got here. So why don't you tell us where you were born and, and how you've come to the decision to, to become an author? My name is Talia Karner. I was born and raised in Israel, and I served in the IDF, as everybody did. And uh, I came to the United States for my master's degree. I did that in economics at Stony Brook, Long Island. By that time, I'd already had started my career in advertising, marketing, and uh, soon I moved into magazine publishing all as one career because I was on the marketing end of the magazines, not the editorial. I didn't struggle with English. I was already very fluent in the language, but I did not look at it as something more than a means to reach my other goals, which had to do with writing good, good sales letters and uh, marketing overviews and proposals to clients. I had that career for over 20 years in total. Marketing and magazine publishing. Marketing, advertising, and magazine publishing is one career. And for our, for our listeners, let's, let's set the time period because today, you know, this seems like, yeah, okay, there's a woman who's in magazine publishing. Okay. Tell us about the time period we're talking about. Tell us about... Um, how common it was or not for women to be heading up, say, a magazine. And what magazine was it? Before I headed a magazine, I spent uh, several years at Hearst magazines, which were magazines for women. Red Book was my magazine. And they were, of course, Cosmopolitan and Harper Bazaar and quite a few other very well-known magazines. However, there were no women in management on the business side. I, I'm very good at stating the obvious, but you're, we're talking about women's magazines, and you're telling me they were run by men. Yes, and the editorial of Cosmopolitan was run by a woman. The marketing and uh, all of the business side was not. There were only men. And in my magazine, Red Book, actually, we had... Cy Chesler, when I arrived, who was a man in his 60s, who was telling newlywed women how to run their homes and be good mothers and wives. This is now early 1980s. Eventually, by 1985, I jumped, I leaped uh, from being a low-level marketing manager at Redbook to becoming the publisher of Savvy Woman magazine. And my leap shook the industry because here I was, a woman, uh, one of only four women in the entire top 200 magazines in the country. And I got to the job because my clients recommended me and pushed quite hard for that. But it was amazing because Time Inc. and... Um, Condé Nast did not have women publishers yet, uh, which is, for us, it sounds amazing. But anyway, that's, and I'd like to explain that how magazines relate to marketing is that you target them to a specific market and you go to specific clients and you show them why that particular venue would appeal to their 
customer base more than something else. Another magazine or at that time cable was starting and we had a big threat that all the magazines were going to go out of business because of cable. So that, that's basically why advertising and marketing was so tied with magazine publishing. So I, I went to Savvy, I uh, broke the glass ceiling with that and actually cracked my own head in the process and went on my own, took my own marbles and started my own game, which was to start a marketing consulting firm to uh, consulting to Fortune 500 companies, how to reach women in a, and better, more so the top of the pyramid of the women's market. I cornered that market in a way that nobody had done ever before. And basically in the nine years that I ran my company, every single consumer product company had been my client as long as they needed uh, to reach the, uh, the rich women with their own income, women bankers, accountants, engineers, doctors, real estate brokers, and so on. Women in construction, women podiatrists, they all had their own organizations and I grouped them together. Uh, and so they had to go through me. And, and now you're reaching all of us with your books and in particular, um, what we want to focus on today is the third daughter and the little known story behind it. But before we do, tell us how a successful publisher, marketing expert, consultant moves into writing and becoming an author. What is this a gradual transition or is this something where the light bulb went over on over your head and you said, I'm, I'm going to write. It was more of a, probably the light bulb. Uh, in 1993, I was a, a consultant, as I mentioned, to Fortune 500 companies, but also I was a volunteer counselor for the Small Business Administration on women's programs. And I was sent to Russia twice following the fall of communism to teach women entrepreneurial skills. I went in May and in October. Each was life, a life-changing trip for different reasons. I was absolutely touched so deeply in May of 93 by the women I met and their valor and determination and their chutzpah. But in October, unfortunately, I got caught in the uprising of the Russian parliament against Boris Yeltsin. I ended up on the run from the militia. It's a big story that eventually I wrote in one of my novels, Hotel Moscow. And uh, anyone who's interested, actually Hotel Moscow is now quite popular again because it talks about the same mentality that I encountered 30 years ago after the fall of communism that is so, we all watch it and we see it in action. After my return, I... Uh, sent that time, you have to remember, it's hard to remember the times we didn't have emails, but I wrote a report to the USIA, US Information Agency that had sent me uh, this 23 page report as to why I came back after four days rather than 14 days. And as I sent it around and on November 3rd, 1993, I had lunch with a friend journalist and I handed her that printed report 
that I was sending out to and, everyone. And this is, just to clarify, this is a report. When, when you say you were, quote, caught up in a revolution during a trip to Russia, you're not speaking figuratively. You're saying no, no. you were physically caught up in this. I was physically on the run and threatened with uh, imprisonment and in the interrogation. Yeah, yeah. And I and so, literally had a bag with me with, with the spray against cockroach. I know from May, my May trip to BF, a spray against cockroaches and I had tea bags and granola bars with me for prison. So yeah, it was a quite a harrowing experience. In, in, indeed, so much so that you decide you need to write a report for the for the government. I, I had to write why I came yeah. back. Yeah. I so got, when I came back, I started sending it out a hard copy because it, emails did not exist yet. And on May and I'm sorry, November 3rd, 1993, I sat for lunch with a friend, a journalist, and I said, don't ask, here's the report, all it needs is hot sex, and I have a novel. And so she says, why don't you write it? I said, okay. I went back to the office, and at 2.48 p.m. started to type Hotel Sputnik, which was actually the name of the hotel. Eventually, when 20 years later, when I wrote a novel using that material, I, I asked my Facebook friends how many people knew what Sputnik was, and I found that very few people under the age of 55 knew, and so we changed the name of the book to Hotel Moscow. Right. We're, we're talking about, uh, for, for those uh, younger uh, listeners, we're talking about the Russian space program. So I, I've met a number of authors, but I don't think I've ever met one who literally could tell me the date and time that they became an author, but you've done that. Yeah. So that moment I started to type and I knew that I found it my, my calling. My kids, when they were talking to me, my eyes glazed over. I, I was so totally immer immersed in it. After three weeks, I said to my husband, I'd like to close my firm and be a kept woman. And he said, okay, honey. And that was December. And I, so I did not renew many of my contracts with clients. I had still obligated until July 95, I had my last contract with Lincoln Mercury. <laughs> so that was my very last check. Uh, so that's how I started to write. I never planned on it. I did not, I had uh, just intuitive understanding of fiction writing. So after I had my first draft, which took nine months, I started taking a lot of classes and courses and attending workshops. And for three years, I was a workshop junkie. I just flew around the country. My, my husband's idea that I was going to stay home was not quite taking place yet. Right. And, and I did what would be probably equivalent to an MFA. So now I know that the way I think is in a, a novel form, meaning I have multiple disciplines in my head at the same time. I know how, for me, the interest is the human spirit that rises over the forces that shape our lives, be it uh, political, religious, societal, psychological, geographical. We all also, the people of the mountains or the sea, all of these, including the weather, they control us at any point. And I'm able to keep all of those things up in the air horizontally 
while I write vertically and whichever force comes into play at that time takes place as the story progresses. I have less ability in poetry that is the, the brevity of poetry doesn't speak to me the way that a hundred thousand words do. Yeah, indeed. And to the extent that, you know, marketing is the communication of ideas effectively to people, it makes sense that you've now become quite a successful communicator of ideas in the form of novels. Now, I am particularly intrigued by the third daughter because we're talking about a piece of history in an already dark and hidden world of sex trafficking that is even darker and more hidden until uh, more recently. How do you even come upon the knowledge that there's a piece of history in sex trafficking that's, that really has not been brought forward? How do you even find out about this? It's very interesting that uh, it was there in plain sight, actually. It started with me by, when I went to, to see Fiddler on the Roof yet again. And I was intrigued because I have grown up in Israel. I studied Sholom Aleichem, the author, for my matriculation, but haven't touched it in years. And I was curious what happened to Tevye's daughters. There had been seven. I always knew there were seven, but Fiddler on the Roof, This what, what I found out was one of many theatrical adaptations, but one that became iconic because of the music and the lyrics and, of course, the choreography of Jerome Robbins. Uh, so I got the book of those particular short stories and I reread the stories of Tevye, that character that we all enjoy, a lay philosopher who talks to God and to his horse, giving both the questions and the answers. And I lived through the book and I came across another short story called The Men from Buenos Aires. And unlike Tevia, that gives us such a nice, warm feeling, the man from Buenos Aires gave me the creeps. And by the way, that story is now on my website, which is my name, taliacarner.com. And under the third daughter, your listeners can read that short story under my translation. The, basically, it's a, it's a trafficker, a, a Jewish trafficker who had immigrated to South America and he is now back in Russia, supposedly seeking a virtuous bride, Yiddish-speaking virtuous bride. And uh, something tickled in my mind. I knew something because I had already inquired about it back in 2007 when I was at uh, in Buenos Aires at the Jewish library. And I asked the librarian in English, what's the story about prostitutes and pimps here in South America? And she forgot her English. Mm. And at the time, I thought that I committed a faux pas. I asked hosts a question I shouldn't be asking. But now that I read this short story, I put it aside. It had been published in 1909 and went to modern day Google. And within minutes, I was printing out dozens of articles about this legal unions of sex traffickers called Zvi Migdal, Z-W-I-M-I-G-D-A-L, that operated with impunity for 70 years from 1860, 70 until 
World War II, luring girls and women, Jewish girls and women, from the shtetls of Eastern Europe with false promises of jobs and marriages, it then forced them into prostitution once they arrived. So, so the parents would be approached back in Russia, and the, the, the lure, the ruse was something like, we will uh, marry your daughter off. And yes, they were, that was one of them. There was a guy, actually, the man from Buenos Aires is what he tells me. It started with what I learned knew was called Ed Alphonse. He was an agent who worked mostly in Russia and bringing the girls to the to the ship and saying the last minute I have I'm called for business or some crisis. My associate will take you across and he would stay and go on to hunt for others. And also the jobs would be my mother in Jewish mother in Buenos Aires is ill. We need the Yiddish speaking young woman as a companion. And he would pay the family the advanced salary of a couple of months. That is to say when they were intact family, like the fiddler on the roof family, mother, father, the children are all alive and singing. But in reality, the life in the Pale of Settlement, which was the area of uh, Russia that had they had gotten from Poland, had five and a quarter million Jews living in squalor and horrible conditions under the czar's decrees that did not allow them to hold jobs, to own property, to practice the professions, and to live in cities or towns. So they literally were cut off any economic opportunities living in those, uh, we've seen those uh, huts in uh, movies like Yentel and uh, Fiddler on the Roof, but those huts had no electricity, running water, sanitation, heat. It was nothing, it was a piece of wood put together. And when living under such horrible conditions, then the czar unleashed the pogroms on them. And it's not just the czar, but it was, uh, anti-Semitism was an official policy. So it happened on the local level through whatever, whoever was the local governor. In the Ukraine alone in 1892, there were 1,200 pogroms. It's hard for us to assess the misery and understand how bad life was. So there are not many people who are alive or intact families because also without medical care, life expectancy was under 50. Half of all women died in maternity for maternity causes and half the children did not make it to the age of five. Uh, so in those conditions, when somebody comes and offers America and they were so ignorant, they had no idea that there was North America and South America. And yes, so either the family sent them or women went by themselves. Young men went too, but for uh, more of economic reasons without the lure and the, the, the false pretense. So I'm glad you set that, that context because I'm sure lots of people are thinking, I, I don't understand how parents can send a daughter off perhaps never see them again. But in those conditions, you can actually see yourself doing what has to be done in the hopes of a much better future. 
for your daughter. And of course, you now tell the story in your novel that this is not at all what's happening. What What are the numbers we're talking about? What how, how many how many women do you do we believe young ladies, young girls were sent off to Buenos Aires from Russia and trafficked and exploited? That's a very good question. And I had a very immediate answer when I printed those, those first few articles from Google, because I read that at its height, Svimigdal employed 30,000 women globally. That's all the way to Beijing, Berlin, Buenos Aires. And my background, as I mentioned, I studied economics. I'm very good at statistics. And immediately when I saw this figure, 30,000, over 70 years, with two to eight years on the job, the life expectancy of these women, I immediately figure out that we are talking about between 140,000 to 220,000 Jewish girls and women employed. That means doesn't count those who committed suicide, which we know based upon the cemeteries in Buenos Aires and Rio de Janeiro, that they are number of those who committed suicide, either immediately or after, was extremely high. My word. And to, to clarify here, we're talking about Jewish young women being exploited by Jewish men, correct? Yeah. Trafficked. Yes, it's, it's very and, sad. And then when they get to Buenos Aires, who is exploiting them there? Who are their clients, so to speak, that are sleeping with them in, in brothels? The customers were everybody. In 1880, General Argentino Rocco unified the various indigenous tribes into one Argentina. And he had this vast land, land that he wanted inhabited. And he had uh, opened embassies in Europe, luring usually men, he wanted Europeans, and in all economic, new economic opportunities, you find a very huge wave of males who either unmarried or if they're married, they leave the family behind and come to the new world. So we had, depending upon the kind of brothels, there were other well-to-do People, men, obviously, or uh, there could be the people in the, in the administration in the top of the, the military, the judicial system, because it was legal. If we normalize prostitution and trafficking, say that's okay, then we get, okay, if it's okay, it's okay for every man. Sure, right? I, it's being, then it gets practiced exponentially. People, people feel like it's, right. it's okay. Right, whereas a society, we say that's okay, we appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And the Argentine government's budget, 25% of its budget came from prostitution. So that country had no slavery. There were no black slaves like in North America. But these women, once they were captured, they were listed and registered as belonging to either a trafficker or to a brothel. Up to the age of 21, it could be only a madam, a female trafficker or a head of the brothel. And then from 21, it could be men, but they never got their freedom unless sometimes they were able to save money and, and buy the freedom.
Let me share a word about a critical topic. My entire career has been about safety and security. You've heard me say before that cyber is the new battlefield, and that battle plays out every day on our devices and computers. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy. No matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect, you can enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now, here's why I like what Avast has to offer. They've got firewall protection that keeps personal information secure and prevents attacks that seek to access our computers and steal our data. They've got ransomware protection that secures our personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Now, let's return to our guest. So what was life like for these young women you mentioned you use the phrase lifespan of two to eight years what what do you mean by that what what was life like for these for these young women they were also you know in my novel i write about well to do brothel it's like a men's club men come to eat and do business and dance and talk eat drink and play cards and then they visit their favorite prostitute but there were many brothels for the poor laborers, sailors, for two pesos around. And in La Boca, according to a French journalist by the name of Albert Lourdes, who in 1923 published a scathing report, he had ingratiated himself into Tzvi Migdal, and 1923 published this report in La Boca, which is a today a gentrified beautiful area in Buenos Aires, the women there were made to take up to 70 men a day, seven zero. And they died. They just died from the pure torture. They did not even have time to die from the sexually transmitted diseases that were rampant. Even a syphilis takes 10 to 20 years to mature. So that's not even, had not even been the biggest problem. They were all kinds of infections with with little or no hope of escape no and they were also think of what was the kind of medicine practice even the united states did not have penicillin in the late 1800s early i think until world war ii is when it finally came to a, a broader use would their parents ever receive money back from their daughters, would they under ever come to the realization that their daughter was actually being exploited? And and what were the factors that would keep perhaps a young lady from telling her parents what was actually happening? The girls was mostly ashamed of what happened to them. They knew that their very poor parents across the ocean could do nothing. Mostly these girls were illiterate because there were no schools for girls in Eastern Europe 
at the time. So they never learned to read and write. Tzvimikda, the organization, had letter writers for them, people who actually wrote beautiful letters back home, spinning wonderful tales about their lives and sending some money along so that they continued the myth of how wonderful these marriages turned out to be or the jobs turned out to be so great. There had been cases of some information leaking through, and there was even a letter, I came across that way after my book was published. There had been a letter by a couple of rabbis in, uh, in Germany, Germany and Great Britain together, they wrote a letter to distribute in Eastern Europe. It never got anywhere. What kind of information system did we have at that time? And there had been cases in the media, in, let's say in Poland, but the poor Jews in, in a, a pale of settlement did not read general, uh, either Polish or Russian type of uh, material. So they, they, it's rarely got, or they believe that the, this particular case was different. They believe this particular trafficker that he, was actually was a well-meaning person. Isn't that, I, I find that, you know, throughout my FBI career, I found with great cons and scams and frauds, there is this innate human uh, desire to believe and to trust and to think this is different. And, and the most successful cons and frauds in history have that element to them, the ability to convince somebody, I'm, I'm okay. I, I, I'm not what you mm -hmm. think I am. I'll, I'll be just fine. And, and, and you've now just laid that out yet again. As you start writing this book, as the book goes public, what's the response to this? You're writing about Jewish men exploiting Jewish women in history by the tens of thousands. What's the, what's the reaction? I tell you, first of all, the reaction came from me way back. I did not want to write it. I wanted to write something else. And I started actually to write a book about the suppressed women under the uh, Japanese Imperial Army during World War II when they were taken into the comfort stations all throughout the Pacific Rim. But by page 40, I was in Argentina in a very convoluted way, but nevertheless, I, I could not get away from the story. And I finally wrote it. I'd never written anything bad about Jews, but I, I was listening to these women. What I turned out later when the book came out, one of the re positive results was that I could show the humanity of these women put them on stage of what really is happening today with trafficking that has not changed in 120 years. So there are lessons to be taken from it. And I've been spending a lot of time doing uh, public service talks about understanding sex trafficking. But back to the times that the book just was released. So first of all, I thought that HarperCollins was going to, my publisher was going to reject it. My editor was like, who, who wants, I mean, this is not a fun beach this is, book. Yeah, this is, a, this is not a pleasant story. Yeah, uh, and I don't write to the, I write to what I would like to read. And I hope that there are other intelligent people like me who would be interested in the social issue, but I just write what I feel like writing. At any rate, my editor 
When she read the book, she thought it was stupendous and published it. The immediate response from the Jewish community was a stunned silence. They did not know what to do with it, whether to take it to their congregations or audiences. The book came out in September 19th, and two fabulous reviews about the book itself and the writing. And, and rightly and, and so, the, by the way. And I've read I've read the reviews, including New York Times, and it's they're they're just glowing reviews, well well deserved. Thank you, thank you. But in January, which was just four months later, the Jewish Book Council gave the book a major award. The Jewish Book Council is really the authority on all Jewish books. And they do tremendous amount of job every year with anything that can be theology, cookbooks, uh, history, and poetry, and of course, fiction. And uh, once they got the seal right printed on the cover of the book, it uh, it broke the, the resistance and that silence that I mentioned to you because right. people who want, love the book but didn't know what to do with it. Well, it took that, that award took away the excuse that people were, were finding to not talk about the truth of this portion of history. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and I tell you that I still don't want to take it outside the United States. I, I was supposed to present in... Uh, Paris on June 9th, 2020, and needless to say, I didn't go to Paris, but when they asked me to, I had presented Hotel Moscow in that uh, literary salon before, and when they asked me, I said, you know what, let me talk about another book, and that is Jerusalem Maiden, half of which takes place in Paris during the avant-garde era. And that's what I ended up, I was going to present. I ended up doing it on Zoom. But the point is that I did not want to take this book outside the United States. Has it been, well, speaking of which, you would think a, a logical audience would be the Spanish language audience in South America and particularly Argentina. Has that been discussed? It's been discussed. I don't know why my publisher has not done what they were supposed to be doing about it. Mm, it's mm. it's a big uh, black hole, could be, yeah, or yeah. it's tough. A it's big tough. white white uh, screen, whichever can be the case. As an author, I don't have enough view of the inner workings. <laughs> Tell me, tell me about it, Talia. Tell me about it. We, we you that. also have that we, experience. Yeah. Although, yes, I do. And although I have to say, there's been some surprises with my own book in terms of foreign language rights. I mean, we sold it to uh, Japan. You know, this is a book about the FBI, right? We've sold it to Japan, Ukraine, uh, Germany. It's very, very interesting. But yes, there is often a black hole there. I want to, I want to springboard this though into current time. We've talked about the historical sex trafficking case. And, and the book, but this wasn't the end for you. you. You've become passionate about this topic, generally speaking. Tell me about that, and tell me about what you've learned about what's happening now around the world and even here at home. Back in 1995, I uh, attended the International Women's Conference in Beijing. At that time, I was still, a, 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 I saw myself as an economist, 
even though I had started to write in November 93, so this is less than two years of writing, but nobody knew that, and I didn't see myself yet as an author. In uh, Beijing, I went to attend uh, different panels on economic situations for women and teach entrepreneurial workshops when I encountered the subject of violence against women. Now, I have knew, of course, about domestic violence and rape, but I never imagined clitoridectomy of 80 million girls in sub-Sahara, Africa, and the Muslim world, the burning of the brides in India, the one and a half million girls disappearing in China every year. And unfortunately, that continues. One and a half, wait, wait, one it's and actually, a half. Actually, it's probably this year, it's one, Point five three zero. You can find it on my website in the presentation. Disapp- disappearing, disappearing. Yeah. Now that probably a lot of them are getting aborted earlier rather than killed after birth. Uh, but I, I'm not sure about that. Other than there is a discrepancy of one point one and a half million. Uh, and that's a presentation, statistical presentation I gave at the UN in 2007. And that's on my website. And I did a projection into the year 2040 when the numbers would kind of even out in terms of population growth. At any rate, in uh, China, I became that in Beijing, I became interested in other, in the subjects of other forms of violence against women. And uh, I ended up out of that, I ended up with three books. One was uh, Puppet Child. One was China Doll, and then now in not completely indirect way, the third daughter. I came back from Beijing and continued. I live in New York and in Florida. At that time, I lived only in New York. And I came back and uh, continued to attend NGO meetings, non-governmental organizations affiliated with the UN. And specifically, I found myself attending lectures about sex trafficking, never thinking that 25 years later or so, I'd be writing about it. So I learned about it, I knew about it, I didn't do anything about it. It was part of my interest in women's issues and violence against women. At that time I was on other soapboxes when it came to women. I mentioned the the, uh, infanticide in China that I presented in the UN is one example. So I've done other things. But now that all of a sudden this whole thing hit me together, I knew so much about sex trafficking. I didn't have to study that. And once the book came out, it gave me a platform to teach the world about who are the partners? Why is this happening? So, of course, we have the number one culprit, and that is men who pay for sex. Right. This is a, a you, you know, you made, you majored, you majored in economics and this is supply, right. supply and, and demand. demand. And, supply and, we, and demand. We do, if you right. don't have a demand, you don't have the supply. But right. if you have a high demand and you have only so many volunteers, then you have this huge gap that allows for the exploitation in or as long as there is a demand. And that is the major play, the first number one player, and we need to deal with the demand side. But what happens in airlines, the hospitality industry, the credit card industry, the, I mean, 
you can't process today any porn site or have recruitment without the internet. The traffickers process the credit cards. They transfer large portions of cash. They deposit it in late at night. And you know probably about that. They deposit late at night, early in the morning, huge amounts of cash, and then probably transfer it, make it transferred to other part of the country you know, or you've internationally. Raised, you've raised one of the financial components here that I don't think is talked about enough, which is that in order for ads to be placed, often online, for prostitution, um, somebody's got to pay for that ad. And it's paid for with a credit card. And the credit card companies could, I think, fairly easily determine who's paying for ads and certain known prostitution locations online with their credit card, correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh, so banks have been, have been helpful when there was a court order in tracing this uh, digital bre breadcrumbs that traffickers leave behind. But nevertheless, that's when you have a major case. The, the, the biggest part goes under the radar. So there are all, all those various players who are part of that industry that is taking place globally. And of course, I focus only in the United States because there's just so much material I can handle within one presentation. Uh, so, yes, so the money, the internet, but then you have a company like Microsoft. I mean, that you're talking the, the platform. What is the platform? The platform is, for example, Microsoft that says, look, we are not the police squad of the world. Right. We just right. can't do that or we don't want to do that. And how are we going to differentiate in some website, let's say matchmaking websites are legit but there's only part of it that is exploitative of underage people, children, which is, by the way, the definition of trafficking. Trafficking is not what many people mistakenly think is moving people across state lines. It's any use of force or fraud that deprives the victim of his or her ability to flee to be free, and it can be used either physically, physical restraint or psychological restraint. But if that victim is under the age of 18, no fraud or coercion must be present. It's enough that this person has been, has been exploited in a three-way financial exploitation for sex. You know, you mentioned when you're describing your research for, for the book and, and history here, the normalization, you know, at, the, at this time period in, in Buenos Aires, uh, in Argentina, it was, it was legal. It was normalized and therefore okay. But, you know, history repeats itself. And so we have this, this perception in the United States that it, in about 10 counties in the state of Nevada, this is legal. And therefore, these must be independent businesswomen, independent contractors who, who are in business for themselves and therefore everything is okay. What have you learned about present day prostitution in the state of Nevada and particularly the counties where it's seemingly okay? Yeah, there are uh, 
10 counties in Nevada and they're not the big ones. They are not uh, Reno and Las Vegas. Uh, so first of all, overall, 90% of all sexual transactions for money in the state of Nevada is taking place elsewhere, not in those counties or not or, 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 or under the radar elsewhere. But of those 10% transactions in the 10, 10 counties, these women, for some reason, I'm not even sure how the IRS allows that because it has a very clear definition, but these women get a permit to practice as prostitutes and they get a card and that card they must deposit with a specific brothel where they work, where they have to be to attend and live there. They are not free to move. They are not free to use their other time when they are not working for other purposes. And the one week a month, for example, they get time off. They have to leave the county. They leave the, the, the town. They are not allowed in some counties to have their children live around them. What kind of independent contractor is that right. other than one that doesn't get the benefits? What are the benefits? That supposedly those who use Nevada as an example, we do that in order to protect the women and they get health checkup. How disingenuous is that? If you cared about the health of women, you would have every John go through a health checkup, not put the women through all those health checkups to present to the men to make sure the men are protected. But the women well, are not. You, you know, you, you have really caused, I think, a rethinking of this whole notion of independent contractor. There's nothing about what you just described in, in, the, in the legalized counties that is independent. In fact, it, quite, it sounds a lot like indentured servitude is what, it, is what it sounds like. And they are. And let me tell you two things. One is that the average time that these women stay, if they're on good free will, is, uh, tends to be four months. And then they go off either on their own and yeah, so something like, so, something must be less than than perfect if they're if they're only staying on right. the job for for four months. The other thing that's even worse is that traffickers put women in those brothels, so now they have somebody supervising them. Their brothel owner likes the fact that there is an outside person. They they work together, and they both benefit now ah so we're talking we so so let's stop there because that's worth something also that i don't i don't think people have realized is that again arguing against the notion of independent contractor in nevada brothels there's a there's another third there's a third party here that's trafficking them keeping them in place the brothel owner loves that because someone is keeping this woman in check for them and making mm -hmm. them earn the yeah, money maybe threatens their families back home there's all, all kind of ways to exert pressure on these women. Maybe they use videos. They say, we will send it to your uh, family. Or if it's a teenager, we'll use it in school. I mean, there are all kinds of ways to, to pressure that, that traffickers can use to pressure women to stay wherever they put them. Indeed. This has been a fascinating discussion. And uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to learn more. Tell us again about your website, 
where they can go, what are some of the uh, features on your website where we can indeed learn more about this global problem that still not only still exists today, but exists in droves today? Yeah. My website is my name, taliacarner.com, T-A-L-I-A-C-A-R-N, as in N-C-E-R.com. And Under the Third Daughter, which is the book that has given me the platform, and it's a bestseller. So uh, in spite of everything, we, I'm glad to say that it has gotten fabulous, fabulous reviews and acceptance by hundreds of book clubs because there's a lot of what to talk about. I Maybe thousands, I shouldn't say. But under that, there is a, an article about what can you do to fight sex trafficking in your own backyard. And that article includes some of the things we talked about that I mentioned, the players such as the airlines and, and the, the truckers who now work against sex trafficking and businesses. Oh, that's very important. Businesses have uh, links to organization called Alliance, Best Alliance, Business and Sex Trafficking Alliance.org that gives every employer, whether you have three people or 3000 employees, the, the few pages that you put in the employee manual about your behavior, but also, that they can demand vendors who bid for their business to apply that kind of business. So back to my website, under the third daughter, under sex trafficking, what can you do? There are so many links to so many organizations that uh, work against sex trafficking. And some of them, you can actually put your zip code and they tell you which organization works in your area. Others work more on the legislation level in the county and local government and of course state. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done in educating judges and the police. Uh, you'll find that on my website. The other thing under Third Daughter, you'll find uh, the, short, the short story, you'll find reviews, you'll find more interviews with me both on podcast as this one and TV. It's it's full of so much stuff. You find the story behind the story. Yeah, no, I've spent I've spent time on the website, and it's it's um it's a place to to get a cup of coffee and spend some time in. No question about it. Talia Carner, thank you for peeling back the curtain on a dark dark part of the history of sex trafficking, and for moving forward with your passion to do more about the current day problems we face. We appreciate the time you spent with us today. Thank you so much for having me and for having a chance to talk about both the third daughter and uh, about my activism. Oh, what, what, so speaking of, we've talked about the third daughter. Can you share anything you've got in the works in terms of another novel? Uh, yes, I'm kind of finishing a, a book. Every time I think I'm finishing, it's not quite, but it's called The, the Boy with the Star Tattoo. And the it's Boy with the Star Tattoo. It's set in France in two different times. One is uh, 1969 and one in 1946, post-World War, World War II. We'll be, we'll be it's looking, a historical novel. Yeah, mm -hmm. which, you're, which you're adept at. We'll be looking for it soon. Thank you, Talia, and be well. 
Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining my discussion with author Talia Karner. Be sure to add her books to your reading list, including The Third Daughter. I'll be here next time to take you behind and beyond the Bureau. I hope you'll be here too. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.